Hi, everybody. Welcome to Chorus versus Chorus. I'm Dane. I'm Ethan. And uh, for those just joining us, this is a music history and discussion podcast. Our theme for today is recording. Mm. Uh, Ethan, you thought of this idea. Tell us why. Uh, I mean, I, I know why this is an amazing <laughs> thing to talk about, but why did you think this would be a good area to, to poke around in? Yeah. So Dane and I have talked a lot about this off of our podcast, but after reading the David Byrne book, How Music Works, I became really fascinated in a lot of what he was talking about regarding how music itself is impacted by the format in which it is created. And so basically we are gonna take that idea and expand it into an entire podcast. We'll talk about the four eras of musical recording you know, music has been around for basically as long as human history. People have used their voices. People have used instruments for many, many millennia. But it's only within the very, very recent past that we've been able to actually record music mm-hmm. and have it live outside of a moment, which is pretty insane to think about. And so we'll talk about the four different kind of eras of recording and how those different formats and the the ways in which recording has been able to be done have impacted the music that's been made. Yeah, Uh, humans have been producing music for as long as we've been human. And, you know, this is the relatively recent history of the reproduction of music, right? And the ability to hear that music produced in one point in time anywhere in any point in time afterwards. It's also interesting because, you know, our show's format, we always choose four categories. And earlier on when we were planning this episode, you know, I initially looked at the history of music recording and it was four distinct eras. And I was like, I think God or Ganesha or uh, Mormon God really wants us to put us, you know, put this podcast on earth to talk about this particular topic because, you know, we have the perfect number to address it. So why don't we just dive right in and let's, uh, let's, let's preview what the four categories are. Um, and then, you know, Ethan and I are going to be your, I guess, your tour guide through these four eras. We begin in 1877, uh, although I'm actually going to start us a little earlier than that. But uh, officially, 1877 to 1925 is the acoustic era. After that, we have the electrical era, which is ninth, approximately 1925 to 1945. And I will talk all about that one. After that, we have the magnetic era, which is generally thought to be 1945 to 1975. And then Ethan, what, are, what is the cherry on top? It's the era that we're currently in, the digital era. Ugh. Ooh, digital, which is, so it's, approximately 1975 to now and Mm -hmm. moving forward but there's kind of sub eras within that which we'll get into a little bit 
but that is the digital era. So again, just recapping, we've got the acoustic era, the electric era, the magnetic era, and the digital era. And again, these are ways of recording music. So it's not the type of music that's being made. We're not talking about acoustic pop music or something. We're talking about, and Dan will get into this in just a moment, but we're talking about the way in which the sound was recorded. So right. pretty cool, pretty techy, but definitely very interesting. And we're going to see very quickly how the way in which the music was recorded did impact the type of music that was made and also impacted, sometimes built up, sometimes broke down the regionality of music and Mm -hmm. kind of made it national and international as well, which is really, really interesting. So our story begins, uh, so, you know, according to Wikipedia and some of these other sources we looked at, it begins the history and the acoustic era in 1877, but I'm actually going to start us in 1860. And Ethan, I'm going to play for you something and I want you to listen to it and kind of tell me your reaction to it. Mm, okay, okay. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, I wish you could see his face right now. You will be making the same face when you listen to this. (laughs) Oh my God. You know what that sounded like? You know how there's this whole like meme culture around taking audio and like overdriving it really hard or like Mm -hmm. taking your mic on your headset and talking into it really loudly and really closely. In the red. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So what I just played you is the oldest known recording of the human voice, and it is from 1860. And so kind of unbelievably, that is where we're beginning our story. That is a recording from a device called the phonautograph. As with a lot of stuff in the late 1800s, this was a thing invented in France. A lot of big sort of turn of the century French inventions. This was invented by Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville. And this is called the phonograph. Love that name. Me too. Uh, They're always doing the most, uh, the French, uh, especially with their names. Uh, This was invented for the study of acoustics. And he recreated this machine to mimic the shape and the function of the ear canal. The way it worked, if you can basically imagine in your head how a lie detector test works, where you have that little arm, the pen on it, and it scrapes back and forth across the page and it creates these waves. So what the phonograph did is it picked up sound waves and it transcribed visualizations of the frequencies using a mechanical pen onto a piece of paper or a piece of glass. But that's where it stopped. This was not meant to be reproduced. There was no way to translate it back Mm. into the reproduction of sound. But what's interesting is that thing that I played uh, in the 2000s, some scientists used optical scanning to actually translate the sound waves on the piece of paper and output them as actual sound. So that audio you heard was actually de Martinville singing Au Claire de Lune, French yeah. song, almost like a this like ghost. It's very, it's kind of haunting because it was this thing that was lost to time and to physics. It was not meant to be heard. It was just mm-hmm. meant to be seen to study acoustics, uh, mm-hmm. but they were able to recreate that. So that's sort of where our story begins. That's the first device that's actually interacting with sound and trying to record it 
in some way. Hmm. What happens about 15 years later is in 1877, Thomas Edison invents the gramophone. If you look at the history here, there are like a bunch of other kinds of inventions. And there's this, this race based on the phonograph to, to create this machine that outputs sound after you record it. But Edison's gramophone was the culmination of this. Edison was not interested in music, uh, this being music recording. He actually was using it to play around like uh, telephone receivers, basically, uh, as he was competing with Alexander Graham Bell. But the phonograph recorded sound waves like the phone autograph, you know, taking this sort of pen apparatus and indenting them into a sheet of tin foil, hmm. which then could be played back immediately. Playback, uh, according to the Center for the History and Analysis of Recorded Music, playback involved placing the stylus at the beginning of the groove made during recording and then winding the cylinder along once again. The undulations in the tin foil caused the stylus to move in and out. And so the mm -hmm. diaphragm, uh, this diaphragm machine that was attached to it would vibrate and then in turn, it moved the air in the mouthpiece and then recreated the sound. So you have, uh, I'm going to try to be as basic as I can throughout this because that's the extent of my own understanding of it. But basically mm -hmm. you're rotating a piece of tin foil, which is recreating the vibrations that initially created the, the inscriptions on the tin foil itself. And then you can hear it back. The first recording made on the gramophone was Thomas Edison saying Mary had a little lamb. Mm. Ten years later, Alexander Graham Bell and Charles Tainter developed a hard wax removable cylinder, which moved across the rotating cylinder instead of the other way around. This, I feel like I've seen these before. Like I've yeah, seen these cylinders before. These cylinders, yeah. Which again are impractical, but they're wax this time instead of tin. And then the next big advancement is by Emil Berliner. Uh, what he created was the flat disc, mm -hmm. which we're going to very quickly come to know as, you know, the vinyl disc. Mm -hmm. And necessity being the mother of invention, he had to actually get around Edison's patent on cylinders, which is why he created a flat disc. And this actually made huh. recreating sound on these things way more cheap for mass production. And according to this Center for the History and Analysis of Recorded Music, the stylus moved across the recording medium, now a disc rather than a cylinder, and recorded on it by causing a stylus attached to a vibrating diaphragm to cut a groove which oscillated. A track was made in a thin coating of lamp black that covered a metal disc. Very basically, from my very limited scientific knowledge, this is what recorded music is. It is etching onto material so that sort of reversing the process, it, it recreates the vibrations. It's information for the machine to recreate the vibrations that created the etchings mm -hmm. in the first place. So that very quick rundown is how we get to this cheap ability to mass produce discs that can then be given to consumers to play music. All of these audio recordings were made, uh, as we said, as the name of this category, they were made acoustically, right? Electricity was not involved in this. This mm -hmm. was all about uh, hand rotating while it's being recorded and it is, it's very primitive, right? It's very like visceral. It's, we're actually like carving sound vibrations onto an object, right? right? And where we're starting now, the original things that get recorded are a very early recording is one called Livery Stable Blues by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. 
and this was in a New York studio, the Victor Talking Machine Company. I love the idea of a talking machine. That's very like sci-fi. It's very sci-fi. It's very like, this is the future. This is the machine that recreates a human voice no matter where you happen to be, right? Right. So in this very primitive technology, they were very obviously very low fidelity. They captured typically only 250 hertz up to about 2,500 hertz. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, just to take a minute here to talk about hertz. So that's... That's like a super duper limited range. Yeah. Uh, human hearing is from about 20 hertz to about 20,000 hertz. Mm-hmm. And a hertz is basically just a way to say how many times is the air vibrating per second. Yeah. So 20 hertz is there's 20 vibrations per second. If you're looking mm-hmm. at like a sine wave, like a for sine example, wave. 20 vibrations per second is the lowest we can hear up to 20,000. And the higher the hertz, the higher the tone, the higher the the note basically. So between 250 and 2,500 Hertz is super duper limited. Um, The human voice is typically like in a couple hundred Hertz when you're talking, but as soon as you get above like 2,500, that's like a lot of the sounds that are on a piano, you wouldn't be able to hear at all. Right. Which is, so the range that that captures are really loud brass instruments basically trumpet trombones tubas and you're yeah like ethan was saying we're all the way down to 25 uh for the lowest that we can hear so a lot of low-end instruments are not practical so interestingly instead of the bass or like the double bass you have the tuba or the euphonium replacing that or instead of bass drums you just have blocks of wood to keep time or to keep rhythm which is a higher register, but you're not going to have that, that resonant bass, right? Mm-hmm. What had to happen was all the performers, like such as in this, this recording, the original Dixieland jazz band. And at the time, uh, this is kind of funny, they, it was spelled jazz, J-A-S-S, which I think is very, um, come listen to the jazz band, you know. The jazz. Jazz. Uh, all of those musicians, if you imagine, you know, like a New Orleans ensemble jazz band, that's a huge amount of people, right? They all had to crowd around this horn, which is being me- mechanically cranked and capturing the sound so that it would be imprinted onto the flat disc. So that's really interesting. And then what happens is, God, what a time to be alive, because at the same time, the film industry is making these kinds of strides, too, at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. But in the in the film industry, you see women, people of color and immigrants actually experimenting the most with this primitive technology. But then as soon as it was seen to be profitable, all the white men come and shove, shove those people right. out. Same thing here, right? And all of these companies start popping up into this Wild West industry. Some names you would not know, Bestone, Crystallate, Homacord, Mulatto, Picaval, uh, but some others that you would know too, Columbia and Decca, both pop up immediately once one and people really want these these discs and they can afford them because they're cheaply manufactured so again that livery stable blues song is a huge hit and then suddenly there's this enormous demand for songs with blues in the title and this gets to my choice so really kind of quickly you know blues originated in the deep south in the 1860s and blues was rooted in work songs and spirituals right you start to hear these songs outside of this regional style being labeled blues 
And so that's why you have a lot of these recordings such as livery stable blues or I got mm -hmm. the blues, stuff like that just don't mm -hmm. actually sound anything like what we would think of as the blues. And actually, uh, several years after my actual choice, there's actually this guy named Sylvester Weaver, and he played a song called Guitar Blues, and he's actually using a pen knife as a slide. And it's one oh, of the first, yeah, it's one of the first recordings that actually sounds like what we would associate the blues with. But the song I chose, the record of note in this story so far is Crazy Blues by Mamie Smith. And mm. this was published by a label of note called OK Records, OK Records, O-K-E-H Records. Huh. OK. Uh, this was written by W.C. Handy. It had been released on the Victor label in 1914, played by a white military band. This is considered historically the first popular mass-produced blues recording by a Black musician in the United States. And Perry Bradford, uh, who is kind of a giant of Dixieland jazz, kind of these early recordings, being told by OK Records no many times, but stubborn, stubbornly finally forced them to work with Mamie Smith and to record this song, Crazy Blues, in 1920. This was the first recording by a Black blues singer. All the backing musicians were white. And apparently th this recording was not without a uh, controversy, uh, a lot of, of a, a kind of a racist backlash fact that this recording had a black singer on it. I'm about to tell you how many copies this sold. A, a million. Wow. Oh my God. Think of how many people lived in America in 1920. It was like... Right. And, and how many people <laughs> had access to things that could even play that? Right. So people were really desperate. They were hungry for this kind of music. And so OK Records in New York, they got in on this craze in 1918. They released this recording in 1920. There's a huge demand all of a sudden for what's called race records, gospel, blues, jazz, comedy songs, uh, or mm -hmm. recordings by Black musicians. And OK Records and uh, a bunch of these other labels, they start putting out stuff by Louis Armstrong, Clarence Williams, Bessie Smith, but also uh, parallel to this, the sort of the white counterpoint to the demand for race records is Hillbilly Records, which is the country music as, as we might recognize it today. But I mm -hmm. want you and the listeners to kind of put a, put a bookmark in there because uh, we have this industry sort of get launched and there's a demand for race records in 1920 and then sort of bifurcated is this demand for hillbilly records, which I'm going to talk about next in the electric era. But that's my choice. I just want to say also, like, I mean, obviously I chose it because it's a historical curio, but also the song is awesome. It is mm. it is white hot, I think. I think it's mm -hmm. really cool. And I think her voice is really cool. And you can hear the necessity for a voice like that on this really limited range and this really kind of limited way of recording around a horn. You need a really gravelly, but kind of uh, mid-range voice that can really cut through all the fuzz, you know? Yeah. Now I got the crazy blues. 
tell us about your choice, which is really cool and like another sort of creepy transmission from an era that we don't think of being the modern era at all, right? It's kind of yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this miraculous last remnant of pre-modern history. Yeah, so this song that I chose is the Ave Maria, which is not an original tune by this mm-hmm. artist Alessandro Moreschi. It's it been a you know it's a, yeah. it's a canonical piece of classical music. We should also um, say throughout so many decades of the beginning of recorded music and mass manufactured music for this market, you have mostly songs that are not written by the recording artist. Right. You know, these exactly. are folk songs, classical covers, and that really carries through all the way to the, you know, the 60s when the Beatles start kind of changing that paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so this artist, Alessandro Moreschi, again, like we think of the idea even of like a recording artist, right? He was um, actually a singer in his own right. He was a choir singer. He sang in the Sistine Chapel choir, which used to be a thing. Which is pretty mm-hmm. crazy to think about that they used to have a big choir sung in the Sistine Chapel instead of just people going to look at it. Um, but the really most notable thing about this recording is that Alessandro Moreschi is the only castrato to mm-hmm. ever make a solo recording. So for those of you who don't know what a castrato is, buckle in. <laughs> very close to the word castrate because that is what they used to do to young boys in Italy who had great voices and they wanted to preserve those voices. And so they would sometimes castrate these boys in order to prevent them from going through puberty and therefore their voice changing. It would also into their adulthood mess up a whole lot of pituitary and right limb things yeah yeah it's uh, it turns out it's not good for you to artificially <laughs> not go through your normal uh cycles right. um at least through castration, castration yeah. Yeah. yeah so as i said he's the only castrato to ever make a solo recording What's really interesting is there's a lot of interesting things about this. There's First of all, of, it's yeah. it's very possible that he was not castrated specifically to preserve his voice. Mm. It's it's thought that may, he may have been born with something called an inguinal hernia, which oh. Google it if you really want yeah. to. But basically, they used to think that one of the possible cures for this was castration. It could have also been the centuries old practice of castrating vocally talented boys before yeah. the puberty. In any case, this recording was not made until Alessandro was in his kind of mid or late forties. So there's a few interesting things about this recording because one, this is not somebody in their prime. Mm-hmm. This is somebody who is well past what they're what's considered their prime as a as a vocalist. Two, this is not a recording artist. This is somebody who typically would sing as part of a choir and maybe have a solo here and there. And three, what's really cool about recording <laughs> is that it is the preservation of a sound. And we're so far beyond even thinking of recording as 
simply the fact that you've recorded a sound and you can listen to it later mm -hmm. because it's so ubiquitous for us. Right. But this was an instance where, you know, it's like taking a picture of a dodo bird or something. Right. Like there are no more castrados. This yeah. is the only one that exists. Yeah. And so we happened to be lucky enough to have this like very talented singer who is an example of this like very venerated, albeit very not wonderful practice of forcibly <laughs> removing sexual organs from a, uh, an individual. Right. But we have this and it's been recorded and it's been saved. And I think that that's just like really, really fascinating and something that, again, we don't think a lot about because we just kind of think of recording as part of the process to get to an end product rather than we're preserving this thing for a later date. These kinds of things mess with our compartmentalization of what we think the span of history was. Because when mm -hmm. I hear castrato, you know, I, I think of like medieval times or something. Right, you know? right. And, and you know, it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, this um, recording was, was made, you know, right around the turn of the century. So yeah. pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it's living history. And it also, listening to it makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really haunting. Like the way yeah. that he sings is just so. And, and another thing is that there was, and I'll talk about this in a moment, but there was no amplification until we get to the next era, which is the, the electrical Electric. era. Yeah. And so a lot of singers who were soloists, which Alessandro Moreschi was, they had to sing in a certain way that was very dramatic and attention grabbing. And mm -hmm. so the way in which he's singing is that it's not, you don't have whispery feist vocals or lowered yeah. vocals. That's not a thing. Take us to the electrical era. So the electrical era is next. It starts around 1925 and it was ushered in by the Western Electric Company's system of electrical microphones, signal amplifiers, and recorders. So up until this point, as Dane described, we'd been talking about physical vibrations of sound vibrating another physical item that then etched into another physical item, this sound, right? And you could play it back and you could hear the sound very low fidelity. And it was all essentially drawing, right? You could kind of do the same thing if you took the needle and you drew on, you know, a wax cylinder or something. This new system is using electrical microphones, electrical signal amplifiers, electrical recorders. What that means is we've now moved into where sound recording is a hybrid process. So you can capture the sound, you can amplify the sound, you can filter the sound, you can balance the sound electronically, and the recording process, how that captured sound is then actually put down into place, remains mechanical. So the signal is still inscribed into a master disc, which is it's still made out of wax or, or vinyl, but you're capturing that sound and you're able to balance it and manipulate it all mm -hmm. electro electrically, right. which is totally out of this world, yeah. something we've never seen before. And something that it helps also prevent is that when you acoustically are recording, you're hand cranking the thing that is being transcribed on, right. which is very prone to human error, right? It's very right. uneven. And so that's why you also have these recordings sound, they sound so bad because right. it's, it's the human hand guiding the process. Now we're getting rid of that with the right. electricity very, as well. Very warbly, 
yeah, very inaccurate. So a few things about this style. So first is fidelity, much higher fidelity. We talked about the acoustic era being from about 250 to 2,500 hertz. The electrical era allows us to go down to about 60 hertz, which makes bass much clearer, and about 6,000 hertz on the higher end, which makes guitars and pianos and wind instruments a lot clearer. The other thing is, because we are capturing this sound electronically, we can capture it through multiple different sources at once. We don't have to have just one big horn sitting in the middle of the room going onto a single wax cylinder or whatever. Right. You can have multiple microphones feeding into multiple amplifiers, feeding into multiple into a single recorder, and then we can put that onto a wax disc. And so now we're able to record the guitar over here and the bass over here and the drums mm -hmm. over there and the vocalist over there. And then you can balance that and mix that and then put it onto the master. So now you're able to hear things a lot more clarity. It sounds just much cleaner and much better balanced. The other thing about the acoustic era is if you were in a room, you can only fit so many instruments in a room. You can only right. fit so many people in front of a horn. Now you can hypothetically have as many instruments as you want in as many places as you want. So that's a really interesting aspect of it. The yeah. last thing and the most important thing that I'll, I'll kind of lead into my artist of choice here is these electrical microphones and amps essentially allow instruments and styles of playing to emerge that, that didn't exist before, right? So if you think about a guitar, a guitar until the electric era was acoustic and you can only get the guitar to sound so loud in comparison to let's say a trombone. Now, if you have a guitar amp and you can amplify your guitar, the guitar can be as loud as it wants to be mm -hmm. and it can compete with a horn or a drum set or a violin or something like right. that. And the same is true with singers. So if you are singing in the acoustic era and you're Alessandro Moreschi, you've got to be loud or else nobody yeah. can hear you. Now with an electrical microphone, you can be very quiet. You can croon. You can sing in tons of different ways, right. which leads to the song that I chose, which is You Go To My Head by Frank Sinatra. You go to my head And you linger like a haunting refrain And I find you spinning round Frank Sinatra was a crooner. He did not belt. You never heard him straining his voice, never heard him really pushing his vocal. And that was what he was known for. He was known for this kind of cool, smoky, lounge voice. I didn't really know a lot about Frank Sinatra, but he's a very interesting character. So for sure. Born in New Jersey, he started singing with this group called the Three Flashes. He liked to sing, but he wasn't, he didn't know how to read music. He wasn't particularly good, but he just hung around these three guys and he kind of treated them like they were gods because, <laughs> you know, they're also from New Jersey and he was this kid from New Jersey and he wanted to hang out with them. And essentially they brought him into the group only because he had a car. <laughs> and uh, that still happens today with punk bands too, right? <laughs> for sure. It's like, oh, does, oh, Jeff has does, a van. Cool. Let's hang Jeff out gets with Jeff. To borrow, can, borrow his mother's van for the weekend. Yeah. yeah. He can play drums. <laughs> so that's essentially what happened with Frank Sinatra. They they changed their name to the Hoboken Four, which is great. Not the Four Flashes. No, no, no. Let's just really switch it up. Essentially, they they started to get very popular. They got a spot on on live TV where they would sing. 
And Sinatra basically was like, I am fed up with being a part of a group. I want to be a soloist. He kind of broke away and instantly became immensely popular. There's actually a story of he played a double feature show at the Paramount in 1944. You know, he's going to play a show in the afternoon and then everybody would clear out. He'd take a rest and then they play a show in the evening. Apparently, they played the show in the afternoon. Only like 200 people out of, a, I think it was like 30,000 people in this huge venue left and everybody else just stayed, just camped out in the theater. And it, it caused a riot. Oh, wow. It was called the Columbus Day Riot because wow. all of these crazy fans weren't allowed into the um, to the venue. He was, was really like, like the pre-Elvis, you know, he was kind of absolutely. the first sort of figure of youthful hysteria around music. Yeah, right? they, they called it Sinatra mania. Wow. Um, there would be these female fans who would like write his song titles on their clothing. They would bribe hotel maids to like just touch his bed sheets and stuff like wow. really insane. So he was hugely popular. He put out a bunch of albums, did really well. And then as with most pop stars, it kind of waned. He went into this career slump and then he signed with Columbia Records and he had this huge revival, yeah. including releasing this album called In the Wee Small Hours, mm -hmm. which goes on to be this very venerated, what, what a lot of people will say is actually the first concept album, mm -hmm. which is to say it has a consistent tone and theme throughout. Yeah. Prior to this, and mind you, this album came out in 1955. Right. So prior to this, an album was basically just a collection of singles or songs that people thought would do well or covers of other people's songs. Mm -hmm. and you kind of throw them all onto an LP and you sell it as like, hey, you get all of these songs for the low, low price of whatever. Right. And he said, I want to make something that's consistent all the way through. With the song that I chose, You Go to My Head, it's the first song on this album. A lot of people actually have argued that this is also a concept album because it is very consistent in its tone all the way through. In any case, a couple of things that I think are really interesting about this song. One, you hear him croon, right? You hear this like classic Frank Sinatra smooth vocal. The other yeah. thing is he is so loose with his rhythm and his melody and i think mm -hmm. that that's really unique i would venture to guess that it comes from his lack of formal formal musical background mm. because he's just really feeling the music and interpreting it in his own way and i i think it's really beautiful that you might give a thought to my plea cast a spell over me still i say this song is an example of how a style of recording, how recording technology, this new electrical microphone system can enable an entire new style of music to emerge. And create and a whole like, a whole persona too. Yeah, exactly. A pop cultural icon kind of persona. It's such a good point. Yeah. It's super yeah. interesting. Uh, I chose a different song for a completely different reason. This is called When That Great Ship Went Down by William and Versi Smith. And the reason I chose it is the other thing. So what Ethan is describing and sort of these professional industry standards changing because of the electrical recording. Uh, another thing happened, which is that with the advent of the electric era, you can now make field recordings. 
Mm. Um, and this is because of condenser microphones. So these electric microphones that are constructed with more lightweight diaphragms and because of the thinner diaphragms and the increased sensitivity of these mics because of the electricity, they're used to pick up more delicate sounds and they can also pick up directionally sounds outside of perfect studio conditions, right? Mm. And so what starts happening is you can go outside of New York or Chicago to make records. We start hearing also, uh, because of this, a shift towards the kind of music that would benefit from field recordings. Now, back to what I was saying earlier, we have race records, which are able to be recorded by jazz bands and blues musicians in studios. But hillbilly music, white countryside music, you don't have any people who play this kind of like folk music living in cities and trying to build careers out of this kind of music, right? It's just music mm -hmm. that's played out in a farmhouse, right? Like and kind of like passed on within really tighter knit regional communities. So at Bell Laboratories in the mid 1920s and with the use of the condenser microphones, you can go out to the field and as this source says, record companies look increasingly to the literally powerless people of the United States as their principal customer base. In an attempt to appeal to the country's more rural regions, the race and hillbilly categories grew rapidly. So what happened is one of the major uh, figures in this new push to go get more recording outside of these urban centers are John and Alan Lomax who travel around mm. with a 315 pound aluminum disc recorder in the trunk of their Ford. And they gather material for the Library of Congress's Archive of American Folk Song. And mm. between 1933 and 1942, they went to 33 states. They also went to the West Indies, the Bahamas and Haiti. Oh, they recorded, what a vacation. I know, right? Uh, they recorded 10,000 discs worth of music. And wow. some of these included tracks by Lead Belly, by Woody Guthrie, and by Muddy Waters pre-Great Migration into, the, into Chicago. So this is the regional sound of, of America. Yeah. Um, what's paradoxical about it, though, is that by bringing forward all of these regional sounds, you're condensing them all into a national commerce. A lot of these regional music styles are starting to sort of break down. Mm. 10 years after the Lomaxes do this uh, brings us to Harry Smith. And there's a particular reason why I wanted to talk about Harry Smith, just as a kind of interesting thing about this recording and a, another branch in this tree that we get because of the way we're recording music gives rise to other kinds of genres. Harry Smith, according to Jeffrey Lewis, was a beatnik weirdo. Uh, <laughs> I love that Jeffrey Lewis has become a musical historian on our podcast. He yes, he absolutely is one. He's the second only to all music as our as our guy. But <laughs> and there's a reason I'm quoting Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey Lewis recorded a song that was a bit of like artistic and amateur music historianism called The History of Punk on New York's Lower East Side. And he starts with Harry Smith. We start with Harry Smith in 1950, a beatnik weirdo living in New York City. His huge collections were insane, of Easter eggs and paper airplanes and rare records. He had about a million and sixty. To change America through music was his hope, and to make some money because he was broke, he compiled a triple-decker collection of songs from his records, released as the Smithsonian Anthology of American Folk. Harry Smith was a polymath, a filmmaker, an artist, 
a historian, a record collector. And what he did is he had his own collection of these 78s technicians that were collected by the Lomax and all the Lomaxes and all these other field recording. He has this huge library and he puts out a six LP record called the Anthology of American Folk Music in 1952, made of recordings made for these commercial labels as field recordings between 1926 and 1932. The discs are in parts. He starts with ballads, then he goes to social music, and then to songs. So the sort of subtitle of the ballads are green singing, kind of to evoke the country. The social music is red singing to evoke Woody Guthrie and the sort of socialist workers songs. And then you have songs, mm. blues singing, where we're getting into the sort of commercial blues recordings, right? Mm -hmm. The song I chose, When That Great Ship Went Down, What's really cool about this collection, the ballads especially, so what ballads are, are folk songs that describe historical events. We have the 1912 sinking of the Titanic, recorded in 1907 by this husband and wife duo, just living out in the country, singing this folk ballad about the sinking of the Titanic. And what the Lomaxes and their like were doing were they, just, they were just capturing these folk songs that get passed around regionally and are just played for the reason of having something to sing. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that Jeffrey Lewis's thesis is that this collection, the Anthology of American Folk, trickles through to all these Lower East Side Manhattan musicians who eventually give rise to punk. The Fugs and the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed and John Cale, listening to this collection of music and basically being influenced to make this more kind of naive, you know, untrained music. Mm -hmm. So this song in particular, I chose when that great ship went down because William and Versy Smith, they're just they're banging out a rhythm on the kitchen table. And Versy Smith is just like bellowing like Johnny Rotten in the background. Yeah. It's completely untrained. It's completely organic. They're not professional musicians. They're just community musicians who mm -hmm. are like Homer. Like it's Homeric. They just contain these different folk ballads that describe different eras in American history regionally. So I think it's really cool because of this advent of field recording, being able to go outside of urban centers where it's polished and where it's professional, eventually down the line gives birth to this entire ethos of punk rock. And so, you know, the tendrils of this go farther than what is even immediately apparent. It's such a good one. It's so, again, just going back to the idea that you started with, like this all was enabled by a recording platform, like a, right. a technological advance that was used in music recording. And now suddenly we have access to all, all of this music that wasn't even really considered 
performance. It was considered more, I mean, utilitarian is not the right word, but it, it was it's for a passing time it, or yeah. yeah, for, you know, traveling or for doing a thing. You sing a song while you're doing a thing to pass the time. Right. And that's now considered music worthy of being recorded. And it's something that people really want. These were right. popular records. Um, yeah. And so it just completely, yeah, it just changes what music is. It's super yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. We're on now to the magnetic era, which is generally seen as 1945 to 1975. Although I'm going to start us very briefly in 1891 by this Danish engineer, Valdemar Poulsen. And what he invented was wire recording, which is basically mm. where you record and store audio onto a thin steel wire. Huh. As that probably sounds, it's not very practical. What then happens is magnetic tape, which is not a steel wire, but it's a metal thin sheet. Magnetic tape is invented for recording sound by Fritz Flumer in 1928 in Germany. And I'm going to talk about the chemistry of it in very basic terms in a second. But basically, this was wartime technology for Germany to record uh, radio signals during the war and to transmit this audio. And what is so different about this kind of technology is that they found that it, when you play back recordings on magnetic tape, it is indistinguishable in sound quality from the live radio broadcast. So as you can imagine, though, is that prior to 1945, prior to Germany losing the war, the rest of the world does not know that this technology exists. So mm -hmm. in this funny way, we put the magnetic era starting in 1945, even though it existed, you know, a good decade before that. We're saying the magnetic era starts in 1945 because that's when it could be commercially used. When the Allies requisitioned German radio stations in 45, they discovered that the Germans had been using this technology and the Russians found tape recordings in stereo. They found recordings in the 90s, actually, of, according to Charm, this website, the history of recording music, Bruckner's Ninth Symphony, recorded in Berlin in 1945, very clear. So very interestingly, you have this sort of parallel technological world nested inside Nazi Germany, and then it is plundered by the Allies post-World uh, War II. Mm. That's pretty interesting. That's why the magnetic era starts. How does magnetic tape work? Very Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me either. No. Very basically, and I'm not going to get into the playheads and the cap stands and stuff like that. Magnetic tape is a strip of plastic that has ferric oxide on it, which is a fancy way mm. of saying what, Ethan? Oxide. Uh, ferric, uh, iron oxide? Yeah, what is Rust. oxide? Rust. So nailed tape, it. Yeah, nailed it. That's baby. a four-year degree. <laughs> for you i mean look at me tape is a strip of plastic with rust on it basically mm, i uh, have and, no idea yeah and the oxide is ferromagnetic which means if it is exposed to a magnetic field it gets rearranged that's what a tape recorder is a tape recorder makes use of a tiny magnetic head that as always is doing this kind of motion that's inscribing the sound waves you have a strip of plastic with rust on it you record onto it you're moving it around and it creates basically this map of sound in metal right in in rust hmm. and why it's so different is that it allows you to record back over it. 
because when you arrange the the rust on the strip, it remembers it, it has memory of that and it can play it back. But say if you were to go back and re-record over it, it'd be no problem because all you're doing is rearranging rust, right? You're rearranging pieces of, of metal basically. Mm -hmm. And so that's what revolutionizes sound recording. The magic thing about it is that the oxide just rearranges itself. So it's not like vinyl where it's carved into an actual object permanently. The tape has mm -hmm. properties where it maintains the information, but then it can easily be revised. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other important thing is that it was stereo. You can actually on tape see the audio pattern. There's a north and a south, and it attracts this liquid, this oxide, right? And the pattern has these two little strips that tell you which channel it's going out of. So it also gave way to stereo recording as well. But for my purposes and for my choice, which is How High the Moon by Les Paul and Mary Ford, magnetic tape and this ability to individually and very like quickly and in a versatile way record now as opposed to the electric era, uh, we also have the ability to multi-track. The important thing to understand about this is that it's permanent yet temporary, right? The possibilities of tape recording and you can go back over if you mess up and you can easily record onto the tape itself. And according to one of my sources, magnetic tape also brought about a radical reshaping of the recording process. It made possible mm -hmm. recordings of far longer duration and much higher fidelity than ever before. And it offered recording engineers the same exceptional plasticity that film gave to cinema editors. Sounds captured on tape can now easily be manipulated sonically, edited and combined in ways that were simply impossible with disc recordings. So again, in this other leap forward, recording music becomes much more pliable. It's like working with clay instead of carving a block of marble, I guess would, right. be, would be my right. analogy. This allows musicians to record harmonies, rhythm and leads on guitar, more complex arrangements without have a, having to coordinate in real time with a full band. This leads us to Les Paul. So I would like to someday, Ethan, do a full episode about Les Paul and Mary Ford Ooh. because he's so fucking cool. For those who don't know, Les Paul is not just the dude whose name is on a uh, type of guitar. He was a musician, a songwriter, a guitarist, and an inventor. He's a guy sitting in his garage tinkering with things. When he was a teenager, he invented the harmonica holder as an example. What? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. The kind that Bob Dylan used. He invented the solid body guitar, which is kind of why we have the sort of like modern electric guitar. The other thing that he invented was multi-tracking. So he called it sound on sound recording. Somewhere there's Very basically what multi-track recording is, before this, you had just one track that you could record onto, right? And you have to be very intentional about that. What Les Paul invented is a machine that takes many different tracks on the magnetic tape, which magnetic tape affords this kind of like easier ability to deal with this te recording technology and create multiple tracks and then put it on one track so that it creates multiple different parts. Something that I'll link to in the show description is this really fun clip on the Alistair Cook show Omnibus in 1953, where 
they do this kind of comedy sketch where they have this like really sci-fi looking uh, machine and they're playing music into it and Les Paul will play his guitar and then they'll play it back and it'll like sound like car traffic or something. And they're like kind of mm-hmm. joking around. Uh, and then they go, and they, he says, okay, it was all fake. And then what Alistair Cook says this is like- This is a fake, this whole thing. <laughs> you asked for Yes, it, it is. <laughs> well, you see, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is uh, the final demolition of this uh, popular and ignorant rumor that the uh, basis of uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford's music is electronics. They make music the way people have made music since the world began. First of all, they are musicians. They have an accurate ear for harmony. They work very hard. They have a lot of patience and they take advantage of the trick which, granted, electronics makes possible, that you can record one part of a song and then you can play it back to yourself and then you can accompany that part and, and keep on recording. That, I think, is the basis now quite seriously. They've and they go on to kind of show sound, how, is, you know, Les Paul will say, okay, I'm going to play like a rhythm part right here, and then he plays it. We play the first part on the guitar. All this right. is the rhythm part. Goes, uh, now, uh, could we hear that back? Yeah. Just uh, to be sure there's no, have some no trickery here? Yeah. yeah. Now you can hear that on here. Sounds practically the same. Almost. All right. Now, now, what do you do? You uh, now you you put your earphones on and you play another part to it. Is that That's right? That's right. Now, I see. Uh, put these things on. Yeah, they're both. All right. You play this, all this to Mary, is that right? Or does she do it separately? Well, Mary will hear the part that's already made. He starts experimenting with sound on sound and recording, which is basically, really basically, like he added an additional playback head to the tape recorder. He tinkered Mm. around with it so that he could record while another track was playing. He's sitting around, he's tinkering more, he's looking for more ways for him and Mary Ford to record by themselves and not with band members so that they can mm-hmm. kind of recreate a big band sound without having to like go out and record and stuff like that. So he can make it sound like they're a full band. He invents something called the octopus, which is the eight track recording machine. Mm. <laughs> and what he also does is he invents close miking. And that's that counterpoint to like we were saying with the acoustic recording, recording where you need really high, loud voices or in the electronic era, you know, where you're still maybe like a foot away from the microphone. Les Paul is one of the first people to figure out you put the mic three inches to one foot to the sound source. It creates a drier and a non-reverberant sound. And mm. so on my choice, How High the Moon, which is a song that stayed at number one for nine weeks. Um, really? Wow. You have Mary Ford's voice, which is in using this multi-track recording. They're building layers and layers and layers of her voice, but she has to be very controlled with it. She has to be very quiet and very like contained so that they can build that Somewhere chorus on all these different tape tracks. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now I'll add a tenor part to that. All right. Wait a minute. You're on. Okay. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? 
I could say a whole lot more about Les Paul and Mary Ford. I kind of got obsessed with them in these past few (laughs) weeks. So cool. And again, we take this for granted, this idea that it's just so easy now that if you're by yourself or even with a band and you want to record music, you have the opportunity to do one thing and then that's done. Then do another thing and then that's done. Then combine the two things, right? Right. Les Paul and Magnetic Tape all made that uh, very basic fact of music recording possible. And the song is so cool. Um, I think their music is still really fresh sounding and kind of haunting. And mm. it's informed by country. His guitar style is informed by like Django Reinhardt and like French jazz. It's just so, so neat. Completely agreed. It's also so clean sounding because it's mm-hmm. their own voice multiple times over, which again... Yeah didn't have the opportunity to do that before so you had to bring in other people to harmonize with you and didn't have to do that here right exactly it was a physical impossibility before this time you could not sing with yourself and that's why you know it sounds a little haunting definitely very clean very of a piece you know yeah My choice for the magnetic era is definitely not uh, not a hit, but a very very important experiment, and arguably not music. So if you're looking for a literally 45 minute track of somebody speaking, <laughs> have I got a track for you? So the song we I chose. Some, we have some weird uh, people with weird taste in our audience, so <laughs> I think I think some of them would. It's gonna be real weird. Uh, the the track that I chose is I Am Sitting in a Room by Alvin Lucier. This is a very important piece of music, and I will explain why, but I'm going to first get into who Alvin Lucier is, and you will sort of get to, uh, a little better sense of why I'm referring to a 45-minute long piece that is somebody talking into a microphone. Mm-hmm. So Alvin Lucier, born in New Hampshire. Hey, New England boy studied with the very famous venerated composer Aaron Copeland and others at the Tanglewood Center. And then he actually went to Rome on a Fulbright scholarship. And when he was in Rome, he saw John Cage, among others, perform, was very influenced by that, and came back to the United States. And in the 1960s, started doing a lot of really interesting sonic experimentation. It did a piece that is really crazy that you should check out called the North American Time Capsule, which is using a very early version of a vocoder. Hmm. This is like mid 60s. That was a pretty important piece of his. But the most important piece is this one, which is I am sitting in a room. He recorded it in 1969. And essentially what he does is he says, I'm sitting in a room in the room, I have a microphone and he just just essentially like very meta describes what he's doing. And he talks about, I'm going to record this and then I'm going to play back the recording and I will record that. And I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves. And so it is 40 five minutes long because it's basically him saying this like maybe two and a half minute spiel over and over and over until it's just harsh noise right (laughs) 
what's really important about this is one, it's sort of music concrete, which is a form of experimental music from the 1960s that really informed like the Beatles. So if you listen to like Strawberry Fields Forever or any of their really out there psychedelic stuff, that's very much what this kind of experimentation was influencing. They were drawing their influence from this kind of like use of this magnetic recording in a new way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really interesting about this is this experiment has been, or this concept, I should say, has been reiterated multiple times since in mm -hmm. different formats. So if you think about it, like I'm sure you've seen on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, somebody does a video capture of an image and then shares that video or shares mm -hmm. that picture. And then you take a screenshot of that and then you share that. And you can actually do this in the same way that Lucier does in this track. You can do that with digital media. Right. You can do that with photos. You can take a photo of a photo of a photo of a photo. We could have chosen literally millions of songs from this era, but I think this one is a very interesting one because it really speaks to the format, right? right. This person was able to use the magnetic recording device to play back music instantaneously, record that music and keep doing it over and over and over to create this very interesting kind of conceptual piece. And doesn't he also say in the little you know intro part where you can actually hear what he's saying like at the end that what he's going for is to smooth out any flaws and inconsistencies in his own voice that is like getting in the way of the resonance of the room tone itself what's interesting is he says that it's because he had a stutter so when he's oh. talking about i'm trying to smooth out my voice it's literally because he didn't want to accentuate his stutter too much and you can hear him at certain points when he's saying this in the very first a bit of this recording, you hear him stutter because he's really struggling against his own speech impediment. I regard this activity not so much as a demonstration of a physical fact, but more as a way to smooth out any irregularities my speech might have. The whole thing is very interesting. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I, I can't articulate why it, like this to me is not just like a heady experimental track. There was something moving about it. And I think that's part yeah. of why it's this idea of like trying to find a way to supersede our own humanity with technology. Right. And right. it's like kind of saying like the human element is the flawed thing. And can we use the technology to like, like get back to nature or something yeah. or get back to the natural order of things. And I found that like oddly moving. So yeah, I no, I totally like, agree. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard this, it was just like spellbinding. Yeah. Yeah. The way that yeah. he speaks and the way that it just morphs over the, the period of 45 minutes. So if you've got a nice, you know, 45 minute commute in your future, or if maybe you just take wanna, a listen to this. Or if you want to sit down with some tea and, you know, <laughs> category although oh yeah maybe in the future we'll have a fifth category of uh telepathic yeah cerebral yeah. era yeah take um, us into the digital era let's do it 
digital era. So moving on from recording technologies you may not be familiar with to ones that you are certainly familiar with, the digital era. This kicked off with what is called digital sound encoding. And the wonderful corporation Sony, based in Japan, started creating this in the 1970s, and they released their first consumer encoder, which was called the PCM1 audio unit in 1977. What's really interesting about digital recording is that unlike any previous technology, it captured sound by a means of basically many, many discrete samples. Think of it like it's a flipbook, right? A flipbook takes a lot of discrete images. And if you flip through the flipbook very quickly, it looks like it's one continuous image. That's what digital sound encoding does. So you're not actually hearing every single moment of sound as you would with magnetic or acoustic or electrical. You're hearing lots and lots of samples, but they happen so quickly that mm -hmm. it sounds completely smooth. It's exactly what happens and, with uh, film as well, 24 frames per second. There are gaps between it, but we can't perceive the gaps. Right, exactly. So what happens is when you get all of those samples and you play them back through a digital to analog converter, you recombine those audio, audio samples and it sounds very smooth, which is also why people are like, I want the highest quality MP3 that I can get. An MP3 file isn't as high quality as a WAV file or all mm -hmm. these, you'll hear these different file types. Flat. It's just the sample rate, right? Mm -hmm. The sample rate, the higher the sample rate, the fewer gaps there are between those little tiny uh, bits of audio. Right. And what's interesting is, you know, this is back in 1977, we actually have now a consumer model of a, a digital to analog converter right? We can take these digital samples and turn it into actual analog noise. It's mm -hmm. an MP3 player, right? Or your phone, right? That's, right? that's what does it now. And it's not this giant machine that takes up a whole room. As this technology comes into the fore, you start to have all of these different competing formats. While it's really easy to record this and then to convert that digital sound into an analog sound, how you actually do that for a consumer is still up in the air. 1977, we're still releasing things on vinyl and it takes a while for consumer technologies to actually settle in. So we had things like mini CDs. Did you ever have mini CDs? I never had one. I really wanted to get one. And then yeah. my brother convinced me not to, because he was like, that's not going to fly. Right. MP3 players. And I was like, that's so dumb. You yeah. can't even have... Like, what are you going to do? Have a whole album on your MP3 player? That's ridiculous. <laughs> it won't fit. <laughs> it's not yeah. the size of a CD. <laughs> right. Um, there was a thing called DAT. There were mm -hmm. regular CDs. There were MP3s. There were really early MP3 players, actually. They held like six or eight songs. My brother got one of the very earliest MP3 players, which, you know, at the time seemed really dumb. But really? again, yeah. turned out to be very obviously smart. And the CD allowed for much longer run times mm -hmm. along with this really high quality audio in an LP format. You've got 25 minutes on vinyl each side, right? A CD, you can go up to 80 minutes and it's continuous. You don't have to flip the record. Right. So that's, you know, something really unique. And then CDs replace uh, vinyl, they replace cassettes 
And now we're in a world where we're listening to digital audio files. We don't mm. actually have a physical way of owning our music anymore. Right. I mean, maybe you buy your stuff on iTunes, but pretty much we stream it all. And this is great for record labels because it costs nothing to distribute it. Mm-hmm. It's easier for consumers to get it. And you it's know, easier for them to thoughtlessly consume it, like on Spotify. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. That all brings me to the song that I chose, which is Song Music by Madonna. I'm actually going to bring us to a Metallica song first. Okay. And the reason I'm doing that and the reason I chose this is because of the infamous Metallica versus Napster lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And this is super, super emblematic of the digital era because this was the consequence of creating things in the digital format. As soon as CDs and MP3 players and all these files became the consumer option for listening to and consuming music, people started to share those files. And Napster was co-founded by Sean Parker, who was the first president of Facebook, Mm -hmm. um, and Sean Fanning. And it was essentially originally just their way to share files privately between them. They met online. They were they were online friends. They were not even right. yeah, real life friends. <laughs> exactly. And they just wanted to pass MP3s back and forth. By February of 2001, Napster had 80 million monthly users. That I was, is I was one of them. <laughs> as as was most of the country. Um yeah. Yahoo at the time had 54 million monthly Jeez. users. So we're talking about probably the most popular website in the world at the time. But it brought the ire of many a record executive and musician. So in 2000, the Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich explained in a Senate Judiciary Committee uh, meeting, actually. So this, this was like a big deal because he was saying that Napster was infringing his copyright for his music. Apparently, earlier that year, he had been driving around and discovered that a demo of a song that was going to be on the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack was playing on the radio. And he was like, how did they get the song? The song isn't even out yet. It was leaked and it got onto Napster. And so some radio DJ in LA played it on the radio. You fool. So so he ended up, uh, along with Metallica as a band, suing Napster, basically argued that Napster was enabling users to exchange these copyrighted MP3 files. And they sought a minimum of $10 million in damages at a rate of $100,000 per illegally downloaded song. Mm -hmm. That's a $10 million minimum. Imagine if this was like a million people downloaded that track because they heard it, right? Mm -hmm. 80 million monthly users, totally reasonable. We're talking like hundreds of millions of dollars that Napster is being sued for. This gets followed up by tons of other artists, including Dr. Dre, and including Madonna. The reason that I chose this song is because this song, music, was another song that got leaked ahead of its release date. Now, the interesting thing is Napster was sort of like the bane of the record execs world at this time and a lot of big popular musicians because they thought this is cutting into my profits. It's affecting my bottom line. 
Madonna single goes on to be the number one song in the country in terms of sales, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't hurt her sales. And a lot of people end up arguing that actually Napster is stimulating sales. And it's, it's one like really the, interesting- uh, It's the, like the Costco sample, right? right? Yeah, you could think of it like that. One really interesting example of this is actually Radiohead's Kid A ended up on Napster like three months before it was supposed to be released. Yeah. It was downloaded by millions of people. Well, Kid A got released. It ended up going to number one on the Billboard 200s in its first week, which for a band like Radiohead, especially an album like Kid A with no singles, it's not a very approachable album. For that to go number one is like, okay, that there's something going on here, yeah, right? Yeah. And there were actually a lot of other artists, not as well known necessarily, who supported Napster, who thought this is actually really good for independent artists. Right. Chuck D from Public Enemy, very publicly, was like, Napster is great. Long lives Napster. That's awesome. Ch- another feather in Chuck D's cap being mm-hmm. awesome. Of greatness, yeah. And what's really interesting is now we give away music for free. Yeah. Right. No, there's no other option, company, you know, there's no yeah. other option. Right. So, so this kind of opened the floodgates and now record executives, all they want is for you to listen to their music for free. Please mm-hmm. listen to this on Spotify. We need more streams. We need more buzz. We need more clicks. We need all this stuff. So it's sort of like we're in this weird space where you can have it for free, but you can never own it. And again, you know, cliche, you're the product now, right? You, can have the product for free, but you're now the product, right? Like you are being advertised to on Spotify. So I chose Madonna's song because I think, A, it's a good song. It's Mm -hmm. totally a jam. I remember the song coming out and being like, I don't know if I like this song. I'm 11. So our songs are in perfect counterpoint to each other in terms of the concept. So you were talking about how digital music changed the way that people consume the music. And I'm going to talk about a song that was impacted in the way that music recording changed because of digital technology. My choice is Umbrella by Rihanna. Ella, 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 Ella. Ella. First of all, I just want to say that this song is so good. Mm. Like, I think it's a masterpiece. I don't know what you think about it. I like it. Um, I think it's kind of like the song Crazy by Gnarls Barkley, where I'm like, I've mm-hmm. heard it so, so many, many times, times that I can't think of it objectively anymore. I can't, or yeah. even subjectively, I just can't you know, it's separate in, those two. You know, it's interesting in my recent acquisition of the ability to play guitar and to mm-hmm. like play songs I like. One really interesting thing is that I begin to learn what it means to be a well-written song. And usually mm-hmm. that means if it's just an amateur on a guitar singing and the mm-hmm. song feels full and wonderful, obviously mm-hmm. like most of the Beatles songs mm-hmm. at this. Umbrella, when I play the chords and sing it, it passes that test. It's like, this is yeah. a very good song. Yeah, when you, can, when you can take away all the elements and just have somebody play chords and sing, and right. it sounds like, good. Is it compelling? Yeah. yeah. just so beautiful and the sentiment is so beautiful 
some quick background. So, you know, Rihanna, born Robin Rihanna Fenty, like actually spelled like the Swedish musician Robin. So if Robin didn't exist, I think Rihanna would actually be known as Robin, which would be a, hmm. a funny, bizarro world thing. She was born in Barbados. She won beauty and talent contests as a child, but she never had any career ambitions because she lived in Barbados. And why would you think that you could break out of Barbados <laughs> to become an international star? The reason she became an international star is because of Evan Rogers, who was a producer for NSYNC and Christina Aguilera. Mm. He was vacationing in Barbados with his wife, who is from Barbados, mm -hmm. and his wife introduced him to a singing group that featured Rihanna. And Rogers was super impressed with her and offered her a solo contract. She came out and then she recorded some demos and then she caught the attention of Jay-Z, who is the newly appointed Def Jam president. She auditioned for Jay-Z and then he gave her an on-the-spot recording contract for Def Jam. The first single she puts out is Pondy Replay, which is a number one song. She puts out several other hits that do really well, but by that point, if she had stopped or if she had fallen off, she would have been, I'd say, kind of like a Shanti, right? Like she'd just mm -hmm. kind of be like a sort of middle of the road, had a few hits. But then in 2007, she releases a song called Umbrella, which even to this day is arguably her signature song. I don't know what could like compete with it. Only Girl in the World? I don't know. Umbrella is kind of like her yesterday or something, yeah. or like her satisfaction. Yeah. Um, one that just everybody knows off the top of their head. Right, exactly. So how was this song written? This song was written by Christopher Stewart and Carius Nash, otherwise known as Tricky Stewart and The Dream. Uh, oh. They are the team that wrote Single Ladies for Beyonce, Ride by Sierra, Baby by Justin Bieber, also All of the Lights by Kanye West. He is also... Just a few. Just a few. Uh, he's also a really good singer and recording artist in his own right. Tricky Stewart and The Dream were sitting around, just fucking around, and Tricky Stewart played a drum sample from the Apple program GarageBand. Yeah. Rihanna, good girl going back. Take three. Action. Anyone who, as a, you know, or whatever fucked around with garage band and heard the song umbrella we all immediately went that's a garage band loop mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> garage band is a proprietary program by apple that allows users to make music it has midi keyboard plugins and pre-recorded loops and it's just a very streamlined easy way for basically anybody to record their own music or to make uh, sample music basically right mm -hmm. they were sitting around tricky stewart plays the loop and then the dream goes wait wait what is that keep that going they start hammering out some piano chords to it. And then the dream, like in real time, comes up with the first verse of the song. There's a lot of, you know, digital ink spilled about the democratization and maybe even the homogenization of the process of recording music you know there's a 
there's a verb right? like the the garage bandization of recording music how you have this particular way of making music anybody in their bedroom can do it now like they said about electric music recording it might it kind of destroys regionality because it puts this garage band sheen over everything i don't know if that's necessarily like a bad thing I can see this as the process of two men who were maybe sitting around in the 50s in the Brill building and one of them just messing with a piano and the other guy goes, wait, right? And then they kind of like build Spanish Harlem by the drifters or something, right? It was these two guys, though, who are products of the hip hop generation and hip hop is all about sampling, right? Looking to things that already existed and doing like basically bricolage Mm. art out of it, right? Why I think this song in particular is so important as a representation of like the shift to the digital era is not just in the way music recording changed, but as the boundaries changed between the kinds of songwriting technologies, those boundaries fall away between what an amateur in their basement can do to these two multi-million selling kings of the music industry, basically getting inspired by this corny pre-packaged Apple loop, right? And what what mm-hmm. springs out of it is one of the most iconic and best-selling songs of the, of the 2000s of Rihanna's career, which is a career yeah. that is filled... She is one of the top 10 selling artists of all time, right? So this is this is a major work of art and a major statement that came out of this democratization of the recording process. And I just think yeah. that's really, really interesting. It's kind of calming because there's just always there's always technology panic, of course. And right now there's t- panic about streaming. There's panic about the easy consumability of streaming, the way that people listen to music on their crappy Apple earbuds or on the speaker of their iPhone or something like that. But it just gives you some perspective, right? Like the the technology has always been secondary to the fact that people are adaptable and they do really interesting things and they change their habits and behaviors in really interesting ways. And art changes because of that. And it's always right. generative and it's always super interesting. Yeah, completely. And on that note, yeah, thanks everybody uh, for listening. This was fun as hell for us to... <laughs> To, un- to unpack, and yeah. yeah, and I think the winner of the episode is the guy who invented the phone autograph. Oh yeah, thanks to him. Thank you. Or the guy who invented the the way you record on wire on metal wire. That was pretty cool. That Danish guy, Valdemar Poulsen. So thanks to all those guys uh, who you know you would literally not be hearing Ethan in my voice uh, from miles away, which some might consider a bad thing. Yeah, most don't. (laughs) If you were interested in the songs, listen to the uh, full songs on the official Spotify playlist. And uh, since this was such a heavily researched episode, I will go ahead and post any relevant links uh, that you might be interested in in the show description. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a bunch. Bye-bye.